This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Madden Gilhooly. I am a casual academic and public school teacher based on unceded Gadigal land in so-called Sydney, Australia, and I'm your host today. Today, we'll be talking to James Domingo and uh, Mark Bailden about their book, How to Confront Climate Denial, Literacy, Social Studies, and Climate Change which was published by Teachers College Press in 2022. Uh, welcome, James and Mark. Oh, thanks. Great to be Thank here. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, so now before we get into the substance of the book, I'm wondering if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about each of yourselves and just how you came uh, to the project. Sure. Uh, this is James. I've been an educator for 30 plus years now. I have a background in as an elementary and middle school teacher in New Jersey. Uh, and for the past 20 years, I've been a professor of literacy, culture, and language education at Indiana University in Bloomington. In terms of my interests, um, a great deal of them overlap with Mark's. Uh, that's why we've had a fruitful collaboration for, for so long. Um, that includes a commitment to inquiry-based uh, teaching and learning about complex multifaceted topics or problems that are inherently inter or multidisciplinary, like globalization and healthcare and particularly climate change. And for me, I think I'll uh, approach climate change with an emphasis on literacy and media literacy. Uh, we emphasize working with digital media, you know, online texts and information sources. Uh, but there's also a civic dimension because um, dealing with climate change requires civic engagement um, and in particular, dialogue across different perspectives and views to develop shared understandings about climate change. So and this includes creating conditions for, for students uh, we work with um, across different academic disciplines and with different climate change beliefs to evaluate websites, often with conflicting claims and evidence about climate change. Right. And, and this is Mark. And uh, I have a background in social studies education, and I've been a social studies educator for the past 35 years or so. And uh, most of my experience, I, I started out in the United States um, teaching social studies to middle school and secondary students. But then uh, most of my career has been overseas. And so I've taught social studies in Israel, uh, Singapore, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia Taiwan, and then uh, I've been an academic uh, in a university setting for the past 18 years. Uh, I was 16 years in Singapore at the National Institute of Education. And the last two years have been at the United Arab Emirates University. And 
So my, my, my whole background has been focused on issues-based social studies, looking at social issues, different kinds of uh, issues, like James mentioned, inequality, globalization, and uh, more recently, uh, climate change. And it's also been uh, focused on inquiry-based teaching and learning. And so, um, you know, really in Singapore and, and uh, you know, working with teachers around how to teach issues using an inquiry-based approach. And so, uh, yeah, James and I met at Michigan State University, and um, we collaborated on a major project there that was a ICT project as well as a curriculum and professional development project. And then that led us to sort of continue work uh, after we finished our PhDs at Michigan State University. And um, uh, we've worked on various projects uh, over the years and, and publications. Our first book was titled um, Social Studies as New Literacies in a Global Society. And so really bringing together the idea of social studies education and literacy education with a focus more on critical literacy, critical inquiry, those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, so that's uh, that's my background. Thanks so much. Um, for some reason... Uh... Intros are always my favorite part of a podcast. I love hearing about people's uh, stories and to how they got here. Um, so thanks so much for those. Um, so the book has eight chapters uh, following the introduction. So today we're we're going to go through in a linear fashion and briefly touch on some of the core themes of each uh, chapter. But before we do jump in to discussing some of chapter one's themes, um, I thought it would be useful for our international listening audience if we start by grounding ourselves in what subject areas the book is relating back towards and just perhaps touching on, um, you know, just a little bit who you had in mind when writing the book um, because as you've touched on, you know, the interdisciplinary nature of social uh, studies, it's kind of looks really different in different parts of the world. So if you could just touch on that a little bit and help ground us. Sure. I could say something about the literacy piece, Mark, and maybe you can talk about the social studies. Um, you know, in, in terms of literacy, you really see that as an, an umbrella term, you know, to include school-based subjects that might go by different names, you know, in kindergarten through high school classrooms, for example, in the U.S., it's called language arts or reading, writing, literature, English, composition, even media studies. Um, so with an umbrella term of literacy, we can really think about literacy as these different meaning-making practices um, and that have resonance and applicability to other subjects and academic disciplines. You know, what it means to read, write, and communicate um, like a scientist or a historian. So, um, and then at the university level, you know, literacy also relates to coursework at, in schools of education. So there's methods of teaching, reading, writing, and literature and write and, uh, and literacy, as well as those kinds of courses across campus. So we see it see again as this, this uh, kind of overarching way of thinking about how we make meaning. Right. And literacy is core to the social studies as well. And, and social studies is truly a multidisciplinary subject. It's, uh, it's been referred to as a fairly schizophrenic subject as, as a result of that, because it's, you know, it requires, uh, I think, teachers of social studies to, to know something about history. History is, in, in most places, a core subject in the social studies. Uh, but history, 
geography, political science, sociology, psychology. And so um, it's, it's truly, you know, multidisciplinary. And, you know, literacy plays a key role. Um, there's a lot of focus on content literacy or what's called disciplinary literacy. And that's, you know, in the, in the case of history, that's really related to reading, you know, primary sources critically, being able to evaluate them, being able to use them as evidence to, you know, make conclusions and so on. So there's a really kind of a natural affinity between social studies and literacy. And of course, uh, you know, media literacy, digital literacy, information literacies are becoming more and more important for students. And so, you know, the social studies uh, focuses on those kinds of literacies as well as, as, you know, young people are trying to make sense of the world and their place in it that requires, you know, different kinds of literacies. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, we've been working with teachers around how to sort of incorporate these different kinds of literacies um, into the teaching of social studies. So that it's been, it's always been a very important, uh, I think, aspect of my own teaching. And it's, it's really core to inquiry-based learning as well, because uh, usually students are working with different kinds of texts or sources, uh, as they're referred to in social studies usually. So, um, yeah, and I think outside of, uh, you know, outside of the U.S., um, you know, Singapore, for example, has a slightly different configuration. So they have social studies, which is more of the social sciences, and then they have the humanities subjects as kind of a separate uh, subject. So history and geography are and literature are treated as humanities subjects, and they're a bit different from the social studies. So, you know, in Singapore, for example, geography would be the place where students would really study climate change. Um, it would be in their science classes as well, but um, um, there's not that much of it in the social studies curriculum in Singapore, but um, yeah, so it's uh, it's a bit different everywhere I think that you go, you know, and, and usually social studies is is tied up with um, citizenship education or what's, you know, often called national education, you know, to uh, make sure students learn something about their own country and what it means to be a citizen of their country and how to address uh, issues and problems that their own country is facing. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how um, in across dis different places it's it's uh, categorized differently. Um, here, we, it, it's within human society and its environment, so hizzy, um, and and that kind of feeds generally into both the humanities and the social sciences into into uh, post secondary um, school education, um, which is where the sort of primary training that I've had in my teaching. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting, this multidisciplinary approach that you have, because I think it does indeed um, mean that you've done, you've been able to do a sort of really good job um, that as somebody teaching in a different kind of geographical and governance context, I can say that the case for drawing the connections um, that you've done, you know, really good job, um, at being able to do that um, and making it applicable across those contexts. So, so thank you for that. Um, and so look, uh, let's jump into having a chat about chapter one, uh, which um, sort of provides a bit of a roadmap for the book, addressing the foundational questions about climate science um, and public engagement with climate, uh, climate science. Can you first help us understand briefly 
um, because I think it will kind of relate back to different parts of the uh, the interview. What are K to twelve students learning about climate change across the US generally? Obviously, I know there's a lot that you could dive into there, but yeah, yeah. Well, for starters, you know there unfortunately isn't much evidence that you know, systematic and comprehensive climate change education is happening in U.S. Uh, K through 12 classrooms. You know, at best, it's a, in a mixed bag. Uh, some some schools and teacher teachers offer climate change instruction. Um, this is more likely to happen in science classrooms in the U.S. with climate change framed and understood as a science topic. Uh, this is changing to some extent in some places. New Jersey is perhaps the best test case because it is the first state in the United States to require climate change be taught across all grade levels and, and subject matter areas. Um, and so there are also more curricular resources to support the teaching of climate change across grade levels and subject areas. So that's that's a notable shift in the last few years. Um, and of course, you know, teaching of climate change is a polarizing political issue in the US. You know, resistance from the political right wing of the Republican Party in particular who've been arguing that climate change education, you know, is part of a broader kind of brainwashing campaign that promotes a left-wing political agenda, you know, that takes freedoms away, for example, freedoms to drive larger cars or fly in airplanes, eat steak for dinner and so forth. A range of kind of narrative devices are used to promote that. So again, so in, in the United States, you know, the educational system is highly decentralized. So there's much control is allocated to each of the states. Uh, so local community school boards, uh, they have a great deal of authority to decide what gets taught in schools. So the fact that there are many different approaches to climate change, to teaching it or not teaching it, you know, isn't really a surprise. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, the modap, like how it's the framing of how things are set up. It was an experience following along how you... We're both trying to explain how it's working within the U.S. context and me doing my own research to be able to sort of better understand and, and develop my understanding of, you know, school boards and these kinds of things as well and their um, engagement with these topics and other topics. Um, you also make a case for why climate change denialism exists that's, you know, really accessible, concise, um, uh, but, you know, quite robust as well. And we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about um, denial context, I think, when we get to talking about Chapter 3. But um, can you talk to us just a little bit about climate change denialism, particularly in the context of K-12 US schools? Like, give us a bit of an outline of what the parameters are of those key terms um, that, to help us frame our conversation. Well, one one. Useful starting point might be that uh, we we identify climate change as industry-led or industry-caused, not just human-caused, which is a typical way of talking about it. Um, while industries are not devoid of human beings, right, um, it's still the motivations, goals, and practices of large fossil fuel companies that have led to climate change. Uh, and the evidence is crystal clear for this connection. So we also identify two different types of climate denial that might be helpful to understand the context of K through 12 U.S. schools. And one type of climate uh, denial is the denial of science, the climate science denial. This is the dismissal for the scientific evidence 
you know, for industry like climate change, you know, the dismissal of global temperature rise, it's tied to greenhouse gas emissions, in particular CO2 emissions from the burning of fossil fuels. So in curricular instructional efforts in K through 12 classrooms that focus on the teaching of climate science would deal with this form of denial. Um, but a second type of climate denial is climate action denial. Um, that is the refusal or unwillingness to take the necessary actions to deal with global temperature rise and its effects. So this can also be called solutions denial in that we know what actions to take to solve the climate crisis. We need to end the drilling of all new wells, oil wells. We need to accelerate the transition to renewable energy, et cetera. But we fail to take these actions at institutional and government levels, um, which makes it more challenging to take actions at the individual level. So in terms of K through 12 schools, an emphasis on climate action denial is, is would not only be the purview of science teachers, it would also be the domain of the humanities, uh, social studies, literature, the arts, et cetera, uh, which deal with questions about, you know, what type of society do we want to live in and why? Um, and I should, should add that climate action denial or solutions denial is, is at this historical moment much more prevalent than the outright denial of climate science. There was a recent study by the Center for Countering Digital Hate that examined climate denial content on YouTube in 2023 and found that 70% of that climate denial on the site was directed toward undermining the climate movement and solutions. So while the actual teaching of climate science remains essential, there also needs to be this concerted effort to make the teaching and learning about climate solutions uh, a priority. Yeah, you also do a great job in this chapter of outlining and linking readers to particularly, you know, those of us who are teachers, um, to other critical education resources within this space. So thank you for that. It was, a, you know, you did that in a really small amount of space in the book in terms of pages, um, but there's a lot in there to to jump off and, and, and really sort of run with, um, I found. Um, so thank you for doing that. Um. So chapter one feeds really well into to chapter two, which introduces reader to readers to your climate denial inquiry model. So do you want to introduce and briefly explain um, the model and maybe you can touch on how you imagine teachers using the model to facilitate or educators generally uh, to facilitate learning? Sure. Yeah, we can walk you through the model. Um, the overarching goal is to promote inquiry you know, posing and pursuing questions to understand uh, this complex problem. And we want to acknowledge our colleague, Alex Panos, who's a professor at the University of South Florida, who took the lead in creating a visual for this model, has been a uh, just an indispensable kind of thought partner through all this work. Um, so, like, how does a teacher, you know, do that with climate denial as the focus? How do we promote inquiry and, and, and think through this model? So we think it starts... Um, with identifying the type of text or source, source um, and to see what how is it what kind of climate denial is it promoting or advancing, or or climate related story that it's advancing. So this could be a scientific report, it could be a YouTube video, a photo on Instagram, a sign on the highway. So it's a broad conception of what counts as a text or an information source. Then when you have that text in front of you, you know. What, what, what do I need to do as a teacher? Well, I need to help students analyze it. 
So the first step we do is to think about, well, is this, this source about the denial of the climate science, or is it really accepting the science, but it's denying the actions necessary to address the crisis? So that's one step of way of analyzing what, what's, what is this source or this text doing? And then we ask a, a range of questions to help unpack that denial in that particular source. Um, and because it's often helpful to, to understand the broader context that shaped denial, the historical, economic, sociological context, uh, we include the context of denial and the framework too. So we consider those and we'll talk about that more. Mark will kind of unpack that in chapter three. So if we're, we're looking at the text, we're thinking about the kind of story that it's promoting, we're, we're situating that text in these broader contexts. We also have to consider our, our own beliefs, values, and views, what we kind of broadly think of in terms of an ecological philosophy. So that's included in the, in the model as well. Um, so as we're considering the text, the source, our beliefs, the context, um, then we want to have conversation. Like, what do we do with, with these texts and our beliefs and so forth? We need to have facilitate some dialogue and deliberation uh, to encourage this critical self-reflection. When you engage with different ways of thinking about the text, and we do that through conversations with others. And we'll, we'll talk through the model of how we do that, I think, in Chapter 4. So in uh, all of this, this work. It sounds really complicated. It takes a really long time, but it's not necessarily the case. You know, once you start doing it, you can kind of move relatively quickly through through a process of, well, it's this kind of denial. And oh, wow, I should ask these kind of questions. And wow, it's connected to this historical perspective and so forth. But all of this is, is intended to help students understand how we might transition away from uh, what we identify as destructive stories that we're living by to what we call these eco-justice stories that we can live by or to live by. Yeah, the focus on narratives throughout the book and throughout your research, um, which, yeah, was, you know, and obviously links to that component of critical literacy and things like that, but I, it was really, really rich and comes out across all of the chapters and is really consistent in being able to, as an educator, I think you're really trying to think about particularly when you're trying to engage on on challenging topics and and create transformative learning possibilities um you really want to make sure that you have access to as that facilitator multiple uh types of narratives to kind of redirect um when you know kids in in my circumstance um you know find themselves in places where they can't quite sort of redirect their own their own thinking so it's it's great to have all of these different different narratives um which obviously the more we read the more we know um so one of my favorite sections of chapter two um which i was just going back over before we jumped on the call um is the section on discourse of delay and frame analysis and in this section there's a four different um yeah one two four so if i was just wondering if you could we're not going to have time to deep dive into every part of it but if you can talk a little bit about redirecting responsibility and pushing non-transformative solutions because i think this will ha help us transition well into discussing chapter three yeah yeah sure these are two related 
what we call lenses or ways of thinking about and analyzing different texts. Um, and they help us understand the different tactics or techniques of climate action denial. That that's why they're particularly potent. Um, so you would see these these um, redirecting responsibility and pushing non-transformative solutions. For example, um, when a video on YouTube makes a claim that's really up to individuals to change their ways to combat climate change. So rather than industries, it redirects responsibility to individuals to change their their own practices. Another example, as you mentioned, Madden is pushing non-transformative solutions. This is where you know claims about, well, we can make incremental changes. We don't have to disrupt the status quo. We can continue to living the way we're living. We can just maybe strive for greater efficiencies with how we're drilling. Um, yet still, we'd be expanding the drilling production of, with new wells. So, and, and, and frankly, this represents an ideal opportunity for inquiry. You know, what proposed solutions are actually transformative? What does transform, transformation look like or not look like? Uh, we need to have these conversations with students and with each other outside in the classroom. Yeah, thanks for that. Chapter two, I found a really rich um, chapter and really the framework that you've developed is, you know, really invaluable and applicable to varying formal and informal um, educational environments, including social conversations. So I'd just say that there are a lot of practical and accessible framings of unpacking how we find ourselves combating climate change denialism in and out of the classroom. And I think that um, sometimes as educators, we can find ourselves wanting to and feeling the need to be experts in all of the fields that we're teaching. And, and it's very useful to have a text like this, which is, you know, what is it, 120, 130 pages and really does a great job at wrapping up so much information that you need to be able to feel confident, you know, uh, facilitating these conversations. Um, you know, we're not even halfway through the conversation. I've already given you so many flowers, so I'll have to save <laughs> the rest of my praise yeah. until the second half. Um, uh, so chapter three, uh, web, uh, the web of climate denial. So this chapter offers essential social studies content for, for understanding climate denial and background knowledge for inquiry-based um, investigations. So you explore uh, the economic, the political, the cultural, historical, the socio-psychological media and geographic contexts for climate denial that are the scaffolding of the narratives, um, or as you theorize, the stories we live by, which was just like so poetic um, that I, I just loved it, um, that the inclusion of, of that framing, um, you know, which undercuts climate action. So I found chapter three to be extremely convincing in its approach. And as a geographer, I enjoyed the section on the geographical context as an introduction to the role of, you know, geographical uneven development and such things. Um, we won't go through all the context outlined, but, um, can you talk a bit, uh, uh, maybe talk more to the centrality of understanding the overlapping contexts across disciplines of thought and why we need to think about these overlapping, uh, contexts? Sure. I can speak to that. So I think to understand both climate change and climate denial, it's important to understand something about capitalism. And it means that, you know, it allows students to investigate capitalism as a, an economic system and to understand, you know, kind of core features like the profit motive and 
competitive markets and private property and, and so on. But it also um, is tied up with these sort of cultural historical narratives of unlimited growth, you know, kind of perpetual economic growth without limits. The idea that nature is to be basically used for human desires, human purposes. And even the third one where we, we talk about consumerism as a pathway to happiness, you know, so, you know, knowing something about capitalism uh, requires kind of a, you know, an understanding of the historical contexts that go back to the industrial revolution, uh, where a lot of these stories kind of uh, come forth, you know, this is a, the means to prosperity into a better society, better life. Um, but also, um, you know, it's, it's tied up with colonialism, um, you know, this idea of expanding colonial territories for resources and new markets and, and sources of labor. Uh, so, you know, we see this kind of, you know, interdisciplinary perspective can help us understand sort of that history. Uh, even, you know, in terms of more modern day, I, I guess, understandings, you know, thinking about sort of the neoliberal uh, push after World War II towards, you know, greater deregulation of, of industry and corporations, um, you know, to really much greater influence of corporations in the political process. So now you start to talk about the politics of neoliberalism and, and this idea that uh, corporations and industry have been able to, uh, uh, you know, pay for lobbyists, uh, they've, they've set up different kinds of foundations and associations that have sort of contributed to this climate denial machine that we've talked about, which has this sort of political component where they're really um, pumping a lot of money into the political system to influence politics, to influence policy. And, uh, you know, so here, here again is this sort of uh, confluence of history and, and culture in terms of some of the stories is tied up in beliefs about freedom and progress, um, you know, and and um, and then there's also um, you know psychological dimensions to this. I think it creates uh, a lot of fear that you know what happens if you know we don't have capitalism driving economic growth and creating jobs and um, in in particular kinds of ways. How do we let go of fossil fuels because they've been so important to our energy systems and and to economic growth and development. Um, you know, so you start to see these sort of interconnections uh, across these different contexts. So, um, again, social studies is a multidisciplinary subject and really to understand complex issues like climate change and climate denial, you really have to sort of draw on these in maybe more of an interdisciplinary fashion so that they um, kind of help develop some of that understanding um, so that you can situate some of these texts, because a lot of the texts that James was talking about uh, are using particular techniques that play into either our fears or either these narratives that we have about freedom and progress, about the natural environment and our relationship to it, um, these kinds of things. So um, I guess that's one example. I think, you know, I really think the possibilities are sort of endless, you know, to start looking at, um, uh, you know, how these different contexts kind of play into um, you know, climate denial. This is, I mean, that's the stuff of social studies, basically. And it's inquiring into these and better understanding those different contexts. That's the content of social studies education, really. So, you know, students are learning something about history. They're learning something about the economics system. They're learning something about the political system, how, how society works, um, and so on.
Yeah. And if we're doing a good job, we're helping them see the connections between all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's quite difficult for educators too. I think, you know, this is pretty challenging. I think it requires, uh, you know, understanding how these kind of work together and, and, and are interrelated. Um, and so, you know, climate change and climate denial are fairly complex and mm -hmm. you, you have to understand uh, quite a, quite a bit, I think, in terms of new energy solutions and other kinds of things. Yeah, I think that um, I, in, come, in becoming a teacher myself, uh, came across uh, Walter Rodney's groundings with my brothers uh, very early, and, and, and Walter Rodney theorizes uh, educators uh, as the first uh, line of defense of public scholarship. Um, and so mm. if we're thinking about uh, public education, which includes K to 12 public education, um, that our role, uh, that we can consider ourselves scholars um, and that if we do consider ourselves scholars, then we really take our scholarship um, quite seriously and quite rigorously um, in, in mm. being able to, to, to know all of these connections and, and facilitate that learning um, for our students, regardless of age. I Upon your first uh, mentioning in, in, in chapter, well, in chapter four, upon your first mentioning of the Heartland Institute's efforts to drive climate change denialism in schools, um, I got to thinking about the importance of explicit teaching of source analysis skills to students, which is something I think many of us, particularly within this space, are pr pretty passionate about, um, but also the importance of teaching developing, of for teachers developing their own critical source analysis skills, um, which I think your book does, you know, really good job of, of helping uh, educators themselves think about building those skills. Um, so here you ground chapter four with a four phrase instructional model to explore the inquiry question, which sources about global warming do we trust and why? Could you talk to us about the four, fa uh, the four phase instructional model and how critical literacies can reveal core uh, science denial uh, techniques? Sure. Yeah, so the four phases include juxtaposing different sources or different texts as phase one. The second one is to guide or scaffold multiple traversals of those sources or texts. The third is to then guide a critical analysis of the denial techniques, specifically the discourses and the frames in those texts, and then to facilitate deliberation as the final step. So if we walk through that process to answer the question, you know, which sources about global warming should we trust and why, um, it starts with collecting different kinds of sources. You know, you might, in the past, we've used sources like the definitive science source from the from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Then we take a source that's um, from a climate denial website, the Non-Governmental Panel on Climate Change, which was created in response to the IPCC. So you have those sources, and we take a popular press article, and we take uh, an economic report of sort. No, I'm sorry, uh, an environmental report from a. a oil company, you know, so we have these different kind of sources to work with. And so which ones should we trust and why? So if you, once you have those sources, then we think it's important to provide students multiple opportunities 
to traverse or work with those sources. So with this particular model, we started with just providing them a screenshot of the source and let them think, is this trustworthy? Why or why not? Or how reliable would I rate this? Highly reliable to not reliable at all. So it gets them to make a decision about that text right away as a first phase. And they can do that quickly. It doesn't take too long to do that, right? It's a quick snapshot with my gut reaction. And another traversal would be, okay, now let's let you look at that each of these four sources again, for example, uh, and have full access to the website and respond to questions like, who's the author of this site? What's their purpose? You know, what claims are actually being supported with what kinds of evidence? Um, so you do a close analysis of it. So that's the second time through that source. And the way we've structured is they do that independently. They have to first really think for themselves before they engage in the next step, which is to actually talk about it with others and to deliberate their own thinking about the reliability merits of each of these texts or sources that they've read. So that's a really key part of the process is to then facilitate. And that's, a, that's where it culminates, where we've used a strategy where, okay, if you think it's highly reliable, this particular source, you stand in this corner of the room. And, and if you don't think it's reliable, you're standing in another corner. If you think it's somewhat reliable, you're standing in another corner. And that's just an open discussion uh, discussion where the goal is to see if you can persuade your, your colleagues or your fellow classmates to think differently about that source. Um, so through that process, it's an inquiry process because it starts with this core question to really explore, like, like, how do we, how do we know, like, how do we determine this kind of, um, which of these sources are reliable and trustworthy. So the critical literacy part that's important to there is that when we have this, these sources to look at, those critical literacy questions are particularly relevant. So if it's a climate denial source, um, you know, come, sorry, climate science denial source, right? This repudiation of the, the science that we know about global temperature rise, you know, there are particular techniques that are usually at play in those sources. John Cook and others have popularized what they call a flick model, which is an acronym for F is fake experts, L is logical fallacies, the I is impossible expectations, and the two C's at the end of that model are cherry picking and conspiracy theories. So if climate science denial is happening, typically one of those techniques is at play to promote that climate science denial. So that's a critical literacy piece, asking these particular kinds of questions. When it's climate action denial, then we have other tools that promote that kind of critical literacy. This is based on Lam and colleagues and Supran and Oreskes who've kind of developed these ways of thinking about discourses of delay and frame analysis. And those, in that case, if it's accepting the science, but it's denying the, you know, the solutions or the actions necessary, again, this points to our earlier part of the conversation, Matt, and you might see the redirection of responsibility, the pushing of non-transformative solutions. You might see um, technological optimism. You know, don't worry, it'll all be solved by some invention in the future. The individualizing of responsibility um, and, and greenwashing would be probably the most prevalent uh, technique there. So uh, moving through those, those four phases of the model, right? Again, if you, you, gotta, you gotta have some really interesting diverse kinds of texts to start with. I think that makes it really compelling to see the differences and then giving students more than one opportunity to engage with those texts. That's the second part of scaffolding multiple traversals. 
Then the third part is you need to guide this analysis, a critical analysis of the denial techniques, discourses, and frames. And then a final step is to facilitate the deliberation. And that happens, you know, alongside of the critical analysis. It's not necessarily, oh, I can't get to that until I do this. It can be a little bit more recursive and more organic, depending on a teacher's needs. But um, we found those, those four phases with those features to be particularly useful to helping students identify the climate denial techniques and um, seeing those sources differently. Yeah, thanks for walking walking us through that. And I think that that, you know, what you've just explained and how the activity that you created and the vignette that goes along with it in the book, um, you're doing this with uh, undergrad students who are education, uh, who are becoming teachers, correct? Pre-service teachers, we would call them here. Um, But I um, modified, you know, I read this book for the most part last year before the school year ended. And so I was able to modify your activity and test it out on some of my year nines and it worked great. Uh, It was really interesting and saucy and they got really into it. Um, And, you know, I think that the framework that you've created as well um, also lends to being able to actually do it with different kinds of topics because there's lots and lots of these kind of topics um, that are intersecting uh, with climate change or or, or uh, maybe, well, it's all intersecting with climate change is the point really, isn't it? Um, so uh, chapter five uh, is um, eco-civic practices of deliberation and reflexivity. Um, another rich chapter, I found it really interesting reading about some of your work with the undergraduate students and comparing some of the, you know, differing understandings of climate science to what I see when I'm facilitating similar discussions with high school students. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, some of your suggestions for how teachers can design activities um, that allow for generative deliberation on sources and real flexibility? Because I think the design of of this activity and the series of activities was you know, really interesting and really generative. So, um, and maybe if you can talk about, talk to um, the sets of two core practices of critical literacies as you conceive them being text analysis and reader reflexivity. Right. So in the, in the chapter, we talk about um, deliberation and and reflexivity as, as two core practices. And so, you know, we, we've sort of merged um, the, the two forms of, discussion in social studies and civic education, which is really um, a seminar discussion, which is more dialogical, and it's really focused on the meaning of text with deliberation, which is more about deciding what should we do. So that that includes, you know, exploring alternatives to make good decisions, that kind of uh, that kind of thing. So we, we, we sort of put those together as, as a form of deliberation around text as well as issues. And so, you know, it's really, it's really, you know, students talking to each other and, and kind of unpacking what's in text. So presenting a text to them and really, you know, asking questions like, you know, do we trust this? And, and, you know, should we trust this? And so, you know, it's, it's sort of doing, uh, James and I have also used these metaphors of excavation and elevation, which is, you know, digging deep into the text to really mine it for for meaning and 
um, to get a sense of, uh, you know, what's the agenda behind this? What kinds of techniques are being used? Some of the things that James has been talking about in terms of critical literacies, but they also need a more elevated kind of view, um, which is to kind of rise above it and to think about the, the context of that text. Um, you know, who's, who's behind this? What kinds of stories are there that uh, are being told through the, this text? Uh, how does it compare with other texts? that uh, you know that are maybe related to the same topic or issue and it also requires kind of looking at oneself in terms of their their own biases and this is especially important um because we, we we've you know in the book we talk quite a bit about motivated reasoning and identity protective cognition and confirmation bias and some of these kinds of biases that we bring based on our particular positions and identities and, and things like that. So, you know, kind of really questioning some of our own assumptions and, um, you know, really reflecting on, you know, how this sort of works on us as a text, you know, in terms of how it makes us feel or, you know, what it makes us think. And then really the deliberation part, these, these really go together. The deliberation part is that we have to hear other perspectives. We have to hear other viewpoints because it's those different viewpoints that really help us rethink our own thinking and, and rethink our own positions around particular kinds of issues. So, you know, the idea of um, deliberation is, you know, we need to talk to each other to make meaning and to, you know, think about whether we should trust something, uh, what we're going to do with that information, how it helps us think about a particular issue. And then we need reflexivity to kind of reflect on our own, you know, positions and biases. And, you know, we do that by hearing other perspectives, other views that maybe help us think differently about a particular topic. So, um, you know, some of the things that we uh, encourage, I think, are, you know, we need to see disagreement as a productive strategy in the classroom. Um, there's some strategies like structured academic controversy that might be something that could be used in a classroom. It's where students have to take um, different sides of an issue, and they really have to research both sides, not just one side, but they have to understand both sides and then kind of decide what at the end of the day, what they think is a better position or a better, um, uh, you know, way to address a particular problem. Um, yeah, I think I think it's you know it's it's these these are strategies that I think social studies teachers and literacy teachers are pretty accustomed to. It's doing the kind of deep source work that you mentioned, uh, Madden. I think looking at different sources, really interrogating them, um, talking. Um, you know, that that's that's a civic. Uh, practice um, to, to, to talk with other people about, you know, how we make sense of issues. And the same can be applied to texts. How do we make sense of this text? Yeah. And including, um, you know, analysis around social media and different kinds of texts and YouTube videos and all of these things, I think, um, is is really important you know uh not shying away from that in academic work is is really important because you know when you're in classrooms particularly with teenagers like that's how they're accessing most of their information uh these days and so much of it so rapidly so we really need to be able to figure out how to create spaces within classrooms that we're including those texts and analyzing those texts um so Moving on to chapter six, uh, which was one of my favorite chapters um, because of the reason I mentioned earlier, which 
you know, around narratives, uh, which I find really intellectually like interesting and vital to facilitating transformative and just learning in public education. So I'm really grateful for your contribution here and excited um, by your engagement with uh, counter narration. Um, so in chapter six, you highlight a model you developed to help high school students evaluate websites. And can I say that the model is really useful and I've already started to think about how I'm going to use it this year. In fact, I can tell you live from the classroom today, um, we dove into some media literacy analysis um, and I got some real live data about, about how we're going to uh, incorporate that into the syllabus this term, which is really exciting. Um, uh, so I'd like to invite you to flesh out, uh, reliability stories, uh, we live by. Um, I was particularly interested in your analysis and reflections on having the other side represented in climate change debates. And I am doing quotation marks, uh, there, um, and questioning how useful or generative this line of inquiry is, you know, this is just such a vital inquiry question. And so I really wanted to hear you sort of speak a little bit about reliability of stories we live by and how there can be an inadvertent sort of spreading of climate denial, um, you know, through these kind of um, ways and, and how we build new reliability stories. Sure. So we, we found working with these undergraduate students that they had certain kinds of stories about information and about the reliability of information. And so we, we characterize these as three reliability stories we live by. So these were stories that seem to be pretty deeply ingrained in the, in the students um, that we were working with and that we, we talk about in the uh, book. But one was, you know, this idea of the need to have the other side represented because they really wanted a more balanced understanding of climate change. Um, but, you know, I think um, this is a very, uh, you know, laudable kind of idea that, you know, we do need, there, there are times when we need to hear different sides and different perspectives. But when it comes to climate change, climate denial, um, there really isn't a debate. And, you know, the science is very clear. And so when we talk about, you know, the climate science, um, you know, when you try to have the other side represented, it, it creates this sort of false equivalency. It kind of gives that position, you know, credence. And so there, there's a there's a, a problem with that, that it it tends to, um, you know, we, we share that it valorizes certain kinds of extreme minority views that may be misleading, or maybe, you know, due to certain kinds of disinformation campaigns and the spread of misinformation in, in media and so on. And so, you know, we pose some questions to, to help students kind of rethink that. Um, and, and with the idea that there's certain kinds of reliability stories to live by, that, uh, especially when we talk about climate change and climate denial, which is that climate science is a well-established knowledge base. And that merits, uh, you know, our, our public and, and societal trust. We need to trust that knowledge and that really, um, you know, trying to present this as some kind of debate um, is, is, is really a logical fallacy. Um, and another one was, you know, just this idea of wanting more information or evidence to support arguments, which, again, is a laudable goal on the part of students. But the, the problem is, again, if you're if you're 
if more, the more information that you have is misinformation, um, and then it, it, it creates some problems. And so, you know, we posed a different kind of story, which is that it's really important to be aware of the quality of evidence. It's really the quality of evidence that determines the soundness of an argument. And so just wanting more information um, doesn't quite cut it. it. It needs to be, you know, good information. And so we have to be wary that, you know, some of the information that circulates in online spaces can um, kind of provide a, a different story or different, uh, different kind of perspective that's, that's misleading. And then the last one was just this idea of reasoning um, involves the evaluation of one's own identity and perspectives. And um, that this is where the, the reader reflexivity comes in. It's not enough just to be aware of one's own identity and perspective, but it needs to be more of a critical evaluation, uh, a more reflexive evaluation of different perspectives um, and, and, and so on. And so in this chapter, we pose some questions that, you know, we hope can move students towards really a more productive understanding of reliability and of information. So, um, uh, for us, it was, you know, I think this was kind of eye opening that these, these seem like very common sense kinds of views, you know, to want the other side represented, to want more information, to kind of think about information through your own kind of identity lens. But it, it needs to be, it, there needs to be a shift in, in thinking about that information. Thank you. So the last two chapters, uh, chapter seven and chapter eight, help teachers start to imagine opportunities to see themselves adjusting their praxis. Although you're kind of doing that, I found myself doing that along the way. I I would like you to talk to us briefly about the three eco-justice stories we live by and, and what shifts you think could occur by introducing different narratives from which to frame our curriculum outcomes. That's a really important question. I, I will invite you to discuss any other, you know, key praxis takeaways that you really want to leave the audience with um, within this space as well. Um, but that's the question that I'd really like to pose to you um, about the three eco-justice stories we live by. Yeah, I can say a little bit about that. Um, and I'm sure Mark could add some ideas here too. So uh, in this intention to move away from more destructive stories we're living by to these eco-justice stories to live by, um, we outline three. Uh, and they're, they're clearly not uh, the only stories. They're among possible many, many possible stories. But the first is all life is treated with respect, care, and responsibility, especially for our most vulnerable populations and species. The second is the primary goal of society is human, ecological, and planetary well-being that comes with a recognition of limits. And the third is civic engagement for the common good is necessary for more just and meaningful lives and futures. So what's important is we need to challenge and ultimately replace stories that are more destructive to ourselves and the coexistence and the mutual interdependence with the natural world. So these destructive stories are stories like humans are the center of existence separate from nature or the goal of society is perpetual economic growth without limits or the path to Human happiness is through uh, consumption. So um, 
these new stories or eco-justice stories replace those stories um, to recognize that humans are not the center of existence separate from nature. It really is about human ecological and planetary well-being. And we have to think about and recognize there are limits um, rather than thinking about economic growth. It's uh, perpetual economic growth without limits, for, for example. So in terms of what shifts might occur, you know, these shifts are already occurring. Um, it's important to shed light on them these efforts around the world and local communities and connections from local initiatives to more global initiatives. Um, chapter eight, we highlight some of those that work happening, everything from the youth-led climate groups that have been um, kind of unrelenting with their uh, focus on the need to move to an equitable and just transition away from our fossil fuel economy um, and the role of the arts and um, and all the all the work that is kind of living out these stories. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a lot of, of stuff happening. It's important to not only emphasize, you know, the denial techniques of the fossil fuel companies, um, but we need to think, oh, well, what are these other stories? We need to study these other stories too. We need to study the stories on the ground, indigenous movements, there's gender justice and climate justice movements and all the intersectionality across these movements and with racial justice, economic justice. Um, health, justice, like all, all this justice-centered work. Um, that's why we use the term eco-justice stories we live by. Um, so I, that's really at the at the core of these, these stories is that um, we can promote and advance justice and live out justice. So we need to study that, that, that work that's happening and, and imagine other ways that might happen. And, and I just want to add that that's, that's why counter-narration is so important because we need to you know, make sure we elevate these stories that have typically been marginalized, whether they're, you know, about youth activism or indigenous movements or other kinds of social justice movements. Students need to, to know that there's, there is this action that's, that's taking place. There's, there's solutions to, to this. And so um, uh, it makes, it makes the counter narration and eco-justice stories kind of the prime, I think, focus for these sort of inquiries that we propose in the last couple of chapters start focusing on, you know, more, more of the sort of eco-justice story. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Um, at multiple points when I was reading the book and I was, um, you know, thinking about counter narration, narration, you know, the narratives, our kind of psychological investment in the narratives. Um, I was thinking about the, uh, a lecture, uh, between, uh, or a conversation between Tony Morrison and Angela Davis and, uh, Tony Morrison um, makes a point about uh, you know capitalism not being dead, um, but it's crumbling. And you know Angela Davis kind of responds, and uh, Tony Morrison kind of clarifies. That's why everyone's so mad. You know everyone's so mad, and she's like, I know it. You know I've I I know that it's crumbling, but you know and that is why everyone's so mad. So you know the stories, the narratives, the investments that we have in these narratives do make us uncomfortable. And so I think, James, when you highlight the importance of the arts and culture in making um justice feel feel good and these, you know, these narratives feel good for us, I think uh the arts does does wonders in making us feel good about um how we're imagining and reimagining uh new possibilities. Um 
I wanted to offer you both in our closing question, if you want to take turns to, to tell our audience a little bit about what you're currently working on, if you so desire, um, you know, I know sometimes uh, that can be a bit, a bit of pressure, maybe, you know, working on nothing and that's also fine too. Um, <laughs> but please, uh, if you want to talk about what you're working on next. Sure. I could start. Um, well, I feel fortunate to, to work on these issues with graduate students at Indiana University, um, taught courses on eco-justice literacies, for example, or eco-justice education, um, and to explore what these practices could look like inside traditional classrooms and out of school and formal educational spaces like museums um, and in the wider world. Also, you know, Mark and I uh, created a website called um, denialtojustice.com where we um, try to consolidate some of the key ideas of the book and working on other tools that the teachers might find useful, the ones that we found useful as instructors. So we'd love for your, your feedback on that, Madden. And, you know, we're looking for, for partners in this effort to, you know, not only create resources, but share what's working, what's not working. Um, that's still in its kind of earlier stages of development, but we're excited about that possibility. Um, and I've also been working on a, on a mobile learning platform that helps people determine reliable and trustworthy social media information with a central focus on health and politics and, and in particular climate change. The more that we can make this process uh, a collaborative joint effort among us to figure out these sources, which ones are trustworthy and which ones aren't. And because um, it's, it's essentially it is a collaborative dialogical process and trying to figure out ways to do that um, with, with technology tools. Yeah, and I've been I've been working on a couple of articles with my son, who's a seventh grade social studies teacher in Korea. And we've been looking at um, sort of these issues of moral complicity, moral responsibility, affluence, and, and climate change, climate crisis. So we've been looking at, um, you know, the, the, the role of wealthy citizens, wealthy nations, um, you know, billionaires uh, who contribute most of the emissions to um, our planet and uh, their responsibility, and especially in terms of those that are, uh, you know, in, in more marginalized communities contribute the least but suffer the greatest from some of the... Uh, you know, the death and destruction that's caused by climate change. So, um, yeah, we, we use some scenarios with students um, to get them to think about some of these kinds of issues. We refer to it as moral civic reasoning. So it's, you know, thinking kind of about those moral implications to civic issues. And um, so that that's something I've been working on. And, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it right now. And hopefully you're both doing something, um, you know, fierce, fierce souls as well. Um, so I, I, uh, let's, let's absolutely make sure that we get the, uh, the, the website into, um, the show notes as well so that, uh, people can have access to that. Um, I'd absolutely, you know, we'll, we'll make sure that we, we do stay in touch and, and that I let you know, um, how, how the work that I implement, um, in the classroom, um, goes because, yep, everything that we're doing that's worthwhile, we're, we're doing together. Um, and it's important for us to create collaborative and, 
uh, solidarity networks um, across um, all our uh, imagined uh, borders. Um, so I, I do want to end our conversation by thanking you both for this piece of work. And in you know speaking for myself, I find that particularly your commitment to exploring the centrality of narratives, as I've said, I'm underscoring this because it is so important um uh you know the stories that we're invested in it, it was a really invaluable contribution to teacher education um i think that for those uh listeners who are educators themselves um and whether you're feeling really strong um on educating for climate um or for eco justice or uh educating for climate uh uh change um you know, pick up the book because it will be a really invaluable resource for you feeling really confident in the classroom for facilitating all kinds of conversations. Because I know there are a lot of teachers who who wish uh, that they were feeling a little bit more confident about the science or the narratives or the sources or whatever uh, combination of those things. Um, so thank you again for coming on to talk to me today, James and Mark. We've been talking about how to confront climate denial, literacy, social studies, and climate change, published by Teachers College Press in 2022. Uh, it's available online from bookshop.org as uh, as well as other sellers. I've been your host, Madam Gilhuli, and this is New Books in Education on the New Books Network. <laughs>